Pressing Matters with Africa Mplope, shining biblical truth on contentious and contemporary issues. Is the concept of one saved, always saved, real? Or is it possible for you to get saved and lose your salvation at some point? And to are there people who are predestined for salvation when others are not? Uh, so we're dealing with that briefly. Um, so I say briefly because uh, I'm not going to get deep into it. Except so, But here's the important thing. These are theological questions that have been part of the Church of Jesus Christ for a very long time. And so they deal with essentially what people refer to as Calvinism. That is based on a teaching of John Calvin, who was a French theologian. And so Calvinism uh, would give us, would know or would posit the idea that they, well, first of all, it posits the idea, positive one, of course, in the idea that the sovereignty of God it affirms the sovereignty of God. But also, concurrently with that, it brings an erroneous position, in my view, that says that God, in His sovereignty, He has destined certain people for salvation. And then, therefore, obviously, the converse is also dire to countenance. Because it means if he has destined certain people for salvation, that therefore uh, implies that certain people are destined not for salvation, for eternal damnation. That God chooses those whom he wants to get saved. And therefore those who are not saved are those which he has not chosen, whom he has not chosen. And there is not much scripture uh, that backs this up in my view. First, I spoke two days ago, I spoke about John chapter 3, where Jesus spoke to Nicodemus when he asked him the question of what he must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the conversation uh, happened between the two of them, where Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and talked to them that a man, unless a man is born again, welcome, and welcome, so unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus did not tell us of any other requirement when the question was posed to him, that a man, it says only that the condition is that a man should be born again. Greetings to you, um, Lucy, but greetings to you, greetings And so, and then he, and then, of course, the conversation went into that wonderful part of, this, of that uh, chapter in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth on the son, whoever believes on the son, uh, may not perish but have everlasting life. Now in the Bible you hear a lot of these all-encompassing phrases, whosoever. You see that's when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when he was they were accused of being drunk and he corrected that error by talking about that this is the day of the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon all flesh. There is a place where it says, Whosoever shall call, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in John 1 also it speaks about that that he came to his own and his own rejected him. But whoever accepted him, whoever received them, he gave them the right to be called the children of God, whoever received him. So Calvinism would then posit that those who refuse to receive him are those who are already predestined not to accept him. In other words, they are not they reject salvation because they were ordained not to have it. Um, so I don't believe that at all. Now, First Timothy 2 verse 4 says to us that God wills for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's will for all men to be saved. And the word all again is all encompassing. Uh, God wills for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Now, Romans 3.23 does tell us, and it goes back to the question that John asked about eternal punishment. John 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, by virtue of our nature, none of us deserve salvation because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and Romans 6, 23, sorry, Paul says to us that the wages of sin is death, right? So that is, if we have sinned, then all of us are deserving of death, because the wages of sin is death. But verse 24 says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So by virtue of our sinful nature, which all of us are involved in, we are deserving of death. And by the grace of God, all of us can access salvation. That's the plan of God. So I don't believe in the idea that only certain people are destined to be born again. Otherwise, it will make our missions work and our preaching the gospel futile. Because how do we know which person to preach to, which person not to preach to? Why would we waste the resources trying to preach to everyone if not that God plans that everyone should be born again? We would have to then seek God to find out which people should be preached to. So we don't waste time preaching to people who are not destined to be saved. Imagine the resources we spend reaching people who are not destined by God to be saved. So in my view, it is not correct, the doctrine of Calvinism, that only a certain people are meant to be saved. Okay, So that's my personal view. Now, uh, another question that was posed to me that um, I want to read here because it's quite a long one. And I think it's important uh, to read just part of it. And so it's a conversation that Larry had with a friend. It talks about uh, a conversation I had with a close friend who believes that government and governance are mutually exclusive with the role of Christ's follower. He argues that Christians have no part to play in politics as it plays a worldly role and is con contrary to Christian values. He adds that politics is not ethical and that at the core of it is self-serving. Right, so further conversation led to inquire which scriptures say that government are part of the new covenant post-Christ era. I argue that we could post also, so I'm not going to read all of it, but the point of the matter is this. The question that is being posed here is, um, is a Christian uh, supposed to be involved in politics or is the church supposed to be involved in politics? Are then these not supposed to have a disjuncture or uh, there must be some level of separation between church and state? Now I'm going to read for you an excerpt from a book by Dennis Peacock, who, got, who, who writes a book that's called Winning the Battle, and he addresses this issue directly. I'm going to read you chapter 4, which talks about the false uh, separation of church and state. That's the title of chapter 4 of the book, book by Dennis Peacock, Winning the Battle. It says, we discussed these two basic categories of the world religious system in the last chapter. One category holds that man's destiny will come out of social restructuring, humanism, Marxism, etc. The other holds that because God is a spirit or a form of a higher consciousness, he is unconcerned with matter or earthly political issues. It is this second false religious concept that has most severe, severely deceived many God-loving Christians. This false view alleges that God is unconcerned with the real-world issues of economics and politics. This is actually an Eastern mystical concept. This is actually an Eastern mystical concept, not a Christian idea at all. Unfortunately, over the last 150 years, this Eastern mystical heresy has entered much of evangelical thought. When the church falls into false doctrine that pulls it away from the real world issues of men, nations go into imprisonment. 
That's what Dennis Peacock says in the book, Winning the Battle. So this basically, this idea is called dualism. It continues, many Christians seem to think God only wants souls. That is, he has little use for the bodies in which those souls live. The deceiver has persuaded the church to buy into the old religious heresy of dualism. Agnostic heresy dismissing by, dismissed by the early church fathers during the 4th and 5th centuries. Gnostic dualism teaches that the world and all matter is useless, if not evil and illusory. God wants spirit, it says, does not want bodies and, and, the, and the work and the work that the bodies uh, do on earth, um, whatever. So let me just stop there because reading is quite difficult. Now, here's the point. The point is that um, this idea, uh, the, is, the idea was not, it's not new to us. It's an old idea. Um, it was de um, debated and dealt with in the history of the church. Uh, look at the, the Reformation era. The Reformation era happened when people like Martin Luther, the German reformer, and others um, were confronting the systems of the church at the time, the, the corruption in the, in the church. But even during that time, Martin Luther himself, who is uh, revered as a, as a German reformer, who translated the Bible from Latin to Germany, and did many great things. He, prior to that, was a monk. So people believed at that time that to serve God, you must disassociate yourself from the world and be and go into a monastery and be a monk. And may not, don't, do not engage the world, but run away from the world. So there was a lot of monasteries that were built and there was a lot of life of asceticism and living a life of sacrifice, of depriving yourself of worldly pleasures in order for you to gain some level of holiness. So this disassociation from the world was existing at that time, but it was proven not to be consistent with biblical teaching. Jesus uh, is a different model. In fact, when he came, one of the things that he did, um, Dennis Peacock touches on this, he said, I will build, when, G when Peter talks to him that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, the flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who art in heaven. He says then to him, I will build upon this truth or revelation, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The word church there is a Greek word, ecclesia. And the word ecclesia is not a religious terminology. The word ecclesia is a political term. It is a Gentile term. It's not, it could have said, I could build my synagogue. I'll build this, I'll build my ecclesia. The word ecclesia means a legislative assembly, a ruling assembly, a legislative assembly. So Jesus spoke about the ecclesia. A relationship. And else, elsewhere, he talks to us and says, Occupy, do business until I come. So he's sending us, says in John 17, when he prays that prayer, that high, that high priestly prayer, which he prays for the church. He says, Do not take them from the world, but keep them in the world. He says, They are in the world, but they are not of the world. So Jesus, therefore, understood that we have some work to do to engage the world and the systems thereof. That is important. In Matthew, when he left, left the earth, one of the things that he said was that he said um, in Matthew 28, that great commission which we love, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. He did not say it's important to grasp the very properly context of what he said. He never said, go and make disciples of all individuals. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, ethnic groups. 
How do you disciple nations without touching the things that steer nations away from God? And one of them is politics. There are seven different spheres or domains of life or mountains of life. People refer to media, culture, health, economy, religion, politics. And so if you don't touch those um, those uh, mountains, how do you disciple nations? Again, I want to reiterate, Jesus never said go disciple individuals, although individuals are part of nations, but he says go and make disciples of all nations, of all ethnic groups. And so you cannot disciple nations without touching and, and affecting the systems that govern and rule nations and influence nations. So it's dualism, it's a bad theology. It has no uh, theological um, and Christian and doctrinal uh, roots. It's very weak, really. Because again, in the Bible itself, we see a lot of people who are involved in politics. And, and, and sent by God. The first one, uh, and who led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, uh, who became also, not only is a politician, Moses was also a prophet and a priest. And so Moses himself had to occupy a political position. And he said to Pharaoh, let my people go to go and confront an evil system of Pharaoh and, and speak of the liberty and the freedom of God's people. It's a political mandate. It's not a, it's not a religious mandate to go and confront an the system of that time that oppressed people underpaid them for centuries and enslaved them and used them. It's a political function that killed its own children. Sons were born and were killed. That's practice infesticide, the killing of children that practice evil, which is now uh, equivalent to abortion. And therefore to rescue people from that kind of a system cannot be done by a church pastor only, that typical church pastor, the person who thinks I'm going to pray about it. No, it's done with somebody who has the wisdom. That's why Moses himself had to be educated in the best education of that time. He received Egyptian education for him to be prepared to confront Egyptian systems. So God prepared him in the house of Pharaoh so that he may go back to confront the evils of Pharaoh. So he learned from Pharaoh what he needed to know from Pharaoh to be able to use that knowledge to confront Pharaoh at the right time. So that's what happened with Moses. Now let's go further. Let's talk about Joseph. Joseph is another example in the Old Testament uh, who was used by God at the age of, I think, 17. He had a dream of rulership and the dream never took, never happened. And then he was, he was taken into imprisonment. His, his brothers put him in a pit. And then he was taken to Potiphar's house. Then he went to a prison. But eventually, uh, 13 years later, he became a prime minister. So only when he was 30 years of age, he became a prime minister of the nation of Israel. And he saved the nation of Israel, of the nation of, of, of Egypt. And he saved the nation of and the nations surrounding him by coming with an economic system that was unparalleled. Even Pharaoh said to him, who else must be in charge of this except you? the one who interprets a dream and the one who comes up with the wisdom and the knowledge of this. So if, if, jo if Joseph was a typical religious person, he would not, the nations around Egypt would have decimated. Seven years of famine, people were rescued, not by, not by a, a typical religious individual, but an individual who hears the voice of God and knows how to cascade that voice of God into the world. That's what saved nations around that time. And so I can give you example after example after example. I mean, the greatest king that ever lived, that, that ever in the nation of Israel, if you Google the name King David right now, you'll have about 40 million hits 
on Google. Even though the man had been dead for thousands of years, that's how popular, that's how powerful, that's how transformational David is. The king of Israel anointed three times this king of Israel, David. Yet this same king of Israel was as religious as you can be. He played the harp, he worshipped God, he wrote Psalms. He was a prophetic individual. Jesus himself is called the son of David. Okay, So David is a political figure. He's a priest, he's a king. He rules, he fights battles. They say that Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. He is a, he's, he's, he's a, he's a man of God and he's, he's in the kingdom of God. So now the question is, what about now that we are in the New Testament or let's say post-Christ? That's you said, but that's Testament, the nation of Israel has, was fighting wars and therefore we needed political leaders. Now we are post-Christ, we are in grace, so we don't need that. That is not correct also, because if you look at models in the Bibles, now you look at situations where um, Paul, um, during the time he was being persecuted, he actually Paul um, gravitated and agitated to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and preach to Agrippa and to preach to high-ranking officials it was very important for him not only to preach the gospel to nominal people but to find men of peace, uh, influential people in politics to convert them to the faith. One of them is the one that Luke writes to the book of Acts, uh, Theophilus. Uh, he's a wealthy person who lived at that time and he became a convert of Christ. So they were writing the book of Acts and book of Luke to account to this man what happened in Jerusalem during his time. And so now um, there, now let's use contemporary examples. Maybe let's not use old examples that we see. Let's use contemporary examples, maybe that be more closer to us. Um, Latin America, uh, South Latin America, um, is now overtaken Europe as a, a continent with greatest uh, number of Christians. Um, and Latin America, and they believe that Africa would eventually uh, overtake Latin America. Um, but Latin America had a, a theology called the liberation theology. What happened is that that theology was meant to make sure that scriptures and biblical hermeneutics is used as well to address social, social, social issues. Okay? So there are people who are only concerned with metaphysical and spiritual issues and they divorce these issues from the world in which we live. And this guy saw that, but people are suffering. They're under oppression, under communism. People are under a, a hard and oppressive systems and politically. Dictators, Marxism, were dictating. People were being crushed, basically. And people are crushed like that. Um, you know, it's God is a God of justice. This is the book of Amos. I desire justice. Uh, and so, so these people were able to, as theologians, were able to read scripture and realize that scripture does speak into the social context. It doesn't only speak into the high and, and the sweet by and by in the world that's coming, but it does speak into this world if read correctly. That is why one of the things that happened to Jesus is that he was asked a question to test him. And it was given, uh, it was asked the question, should we pay tax to Caesar? That question was meant to test, to test Jesus and to check, um, it, does he have an honor or as a respect for the civil law that governed his time? So they may report him to Caesar as a lawbreaker. And therefore they brought this question, should we pay tax to Caesar? Uh, and therefore Jesus said to them, bring me a coin, bring me a coin. And they brought him a coin. Then he asked him a question and he said to them, 
whose inscription is on the coin whose inscription whose image is on the coin they said he said they answered they said caesar and said wonderful then render unto caesar's what belongs to caesar and give unto god what belongs to god so not to say jesus never dismissed the importance of paying tax meaning he honored the system that ruled during his time but then he was saying to them that the image on the coin is caesar's then give it to caesar the image and that belongs to God, obviously on the earth is yours. So give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? In that context, Caesars would put statues of themselves throughout their colony to represent their leadership and their rulership. So therefore, everywhere you see the statue of Caesar, you have to bow, even though Caesar was not present. His statue represents his rulership. So Jesus is saying, where Caesar's image is, you are given to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But he then says, but give unto God what belongs to God. The only image on earth that belongs to God is you. You are the image of God. So give yourself to God, but give the coin to Caesar. Okay. So we, we're still operating in a system where our head is in the cloud, but our feet are still on the ground. We are not yet taken out into heaven. We are still on the earth, governed by systems of this world. So a person who believes we should not be involved in politics is saying to me, we should submit ourselves to injustice. We should accept rulership by dictators and evil governments. We should submit ourselves and allow ourselves to be, uh, to be governed by people and not even participate in the voting system. Now, how do you justify voting? Let me ask you a question. How do you justify voting? On what grounds do you justify casting a vote at participating in a democratic system of voting? Which scripture do you use to rationalize going to a voting booth and voting for a political party? How do you justify that? If you do vote, who do you vote for? How do you make the choice of who to vote for? Is that choice based on your, on your wisdom? If God gives you the leader and leading and who to vote for, why would he even speak into that if that system is, is contrary or is against that system? So now two questions I'm asking you. If voting is correct, is voting correct? If it is correct, um, when, how, who and how do you vote? If God leads you, how would he lead you to, to engage in something that he's already opposed to? And if, if, if voting is evil, why then do so many Christians vote? Are they being punished by God for voting? Are they committing sin by voting? So I need to understand, therefore, this question in relation to that. What do we talk? What do we do about abortion, for instance? Do we then say because it's a political issue, it doesn't require our our participation, so we don't have to speak about? abortion? What do we do about human trafficking? What do we do about femicide? What do we do about poverty? What do we do about crime? What do we do about educational education issues, schools? What do we do about economy? What do we do about taxation? Uh, what do we do? Do you accept being taxed 60% of your income, 90% of your income? What do you do when you're under a system like that? Would you accept it? Because it's a political system. It's not a religious system. Uh, taxation is, is politics. Um, uh, abortion is a political issue. Education and syllabus and pedagogy is, is, is political issues. Um, everything in this world is political. You're driving. Which side of the road you drive is a political issue. And so what do we do about everything else that happens? Church 
is being closed or open is a political decision. So you could live in a world where politics, uh, a political systems dictate that all decisions should be closed, freedom of religion is, is curtailed and restricted. What do you do about it? Because it's a political decision. So if you say to me we should not be involved in politics, the word politics, by the way, is a French word which means policies. You mean we should not influence the policies that govern our world. The word parliament as well, uh, sorry, the word parliament is a French word which is means palier, which means to speak. So parliament is a place where people that that influence how their nations are governed. Let me use a, a last example. Um, the, uh, the Roman law that governs nations of the earth and governs our nations as well is based on the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on the mountain of Sinai. So this na these laws are now governing nations around the world. Uh, United Nations, which was formed after the Second World War, has as a founding document, as a founding scripture, Isaiah, where it says, we shall learn war no more. We shall put out our sweats on the plow. So this uh, scripture of Isaiah is responsible for the formation of the United Nations, the largest multinational organization in the world, which is a political structure. So to me, it makes no sense to talk about lack of involvement. What we should be asking ourselves is what and who should be involved in politics now at an active level. All one of us is affected by politics and involved, but not at the same degree. Now, let me just throw this further. Let me widen the net here further on. If Christians can be involved in politics um, by virtue of politics being dirty, I would argue then at the same level, Christians should not be involved in health, they should not be involved in business, they should not go to school, Christians should not play sports, Christians should not do anything except go to church. On the same level, what makes church, what makes politics dirtier than sports? What makes politics right to do or wrong to do? Or what makes business right thing to do? Because there's evils in business. There's corruption in business. Why should Christians buy and sell anything? Why should they be involved in business? Why should Christians be doctors? Why should Christians be lawyers? Lawyers sometimes say things that are untrue on, 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 in, in court. So Christians should never be lawyers because they may end up lying in court. In the, the, same, the, the argument, you can stretch it further and say there's nothing that Christians ought to do except to pray every day and sing hallelujah every single day, which is completely impractical, really, if you think about it. There should not be Christian lawyers, Christian doctors, Christian businessmen, Christian sportsmen. Why is... Why, why is a wafer nigger a believer and who's running and just taking the world record that has, been, that has been there for years? Why should he run? Is that not evil? Who invented running? Is it God? Where is the Bible is issue of running? Did, I mean, let's take it further. Let's stress this. Who gave wafer nigger the, 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 the talent to run? The devil or God? You know, where does he get it from? If he's not supposed to run, then the, the devil give him the this talent in order to glorify the devil. How is the devil glorified when Varunfanikek honors God with his running? Let's go further. Let's talk about every place. Let's talk about Kaka of Brazil. Let's talk about Brazil that wins the World Cup and then takes off their shirts to reveal the name Jesus is Lord to one billion people in the World Cup. Why should they do that? Well, soccer has nothing to do with God. It's, it's a system of the world. Why should they even play sport? Why should they? Let's talk about boxers. Um, like uh, this guy from uh, Filipino, I just forgot his name now. 
um, and so who fought with, with Mayweather. And so he, he wins and then he honors God and he builds houses for his community in Filipino. He builds houses, involved, he takes his money and he sows it for social development. Why should he place, I mean, what is there in the Bible about being bitten and bitten somebody in terms of boxing? Is that holy? I don't see anything holy about being bitten to a pulp or beating the opponent. Should this guy play boxing and be involved in boxing? Let's talk about Rabbi. Should we, I mean, uh, Sia, Sia is a Christian. He fellowships in Cape Town and Hillsong. So why should he be a captain of the Springbok, well, uh, Springbok team? Is he not disobeying God by that? Shouldn't he have been in church on that Sunday, whatever day, or not, not Saturday? But, but why should he do that? You know, he can go further. Yes, many Pakio. Thank you, Lazarus. And so you can go further about this idea of dualism and how far do you draw the line. So to me, it doesn't make sense at all, this idea that Christians should be involved in politics. Politics is another domain of life, as is any other domain, as is business, as is health, as is education, as is sports, as in arts, as in anything. In fact, dualism is dangerous because then it makes ministry, people like me, to have such preeminence in the gospel to a degree that everybody then wants to be called to ministry. And everybody wants to be a preacher when they're supposed to be in business. And then it makes this idea that there's sacredness, that it, it, it creates a, dual, a false dualism between the secular and the sacred. So I'm in the sacred space. I'm more pleasing to God. Everybody else is not pleasing to God because they are in the world. That, to me, is incorrect. Okay. So I want to just stop there because of our time and I trust that you have been helped a little bit here and there on this and uh, then we've got a great time uh, chatting like this and that uh, it's helpful to you. I'll see you again tomorrow at 5 p.m. Um, so if you want to ask questions, you want us to engage in questions and answers, we have a WhatsApp group, we do that and we can allow you to do that if you're interested. Otherwise, see you tomorrow. Let the Lord be with you tonight and with your family and bless you and uh, yeah, make sure that you are strong. God bless you. Thank you guys. See you tomorrow at 5.